This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. If you suffer from arthritis, you're probably on painkillers, and years of daily painkillers can take a serious toll on your health. But there might be a new option. If you're open to it, the Arthritis Society of Canada has just awarded a hefty research grant for a three-year study on medical marijuana. Today, I'll be joined by researcher Dr. Jason McDougall and Joanne Simons, the Arthritis Society's chief mission officer. Plus, wedding season means it's also anniversary season. You probably know someone celebrating a major milestone this year. On a personal note, my husband and I will be celebrating our 25th in just a few days. Where does the tradition of celebrating anniversaries come from and what's the proper way to honor them? We'll find out from etiquette and protocol consultant Lisa Orr. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The American government has put forward legislation to encourage doctors to counsel some 55 million older and disabled patients on end-of-life planning. The proposal put forward by Medicare would reimburse doctors for conversations with patients about how and even whether or not they would like to be kept alive if they are too sick to speak for themselves. A similar plan was put forward in 2009, but at the time it received a harsh backlash led by Republican Governor Sarah Palin, who referred to, quote, government-sponsored death panels. Reaction to this week's plan was largely muted, and it's expected to go into effect on January 1st. A year and a half ago, we told you about One Kenton, a new state-of-the-art residence for Alzheimer's patients near Bathurst and Finch. The four-story retirement home received $5.4 million in funding from the federal government and the assistance of Western University's Ivy International Center for Health Innovation. But building costs escalated to over $16 million, and the hefty $7,500 per month cost for residents meant Benebrith, Canada, has been able to fill less than half of the 44 rooms. Benebrith CEO Michael Mostyn says the facility is under insolvency protection and up for sale. Financially, uh, no, it was not a success at all. It was a failure. But, um, but on a healthcare perspective, uh, it really was a success. A Minnesotan Zoomer has made a 501-mile trek to San Diego's Comic-Con while dressed as a Star Wars character to honor the memory of his late wife. 57-year-old Kevin Doyle lost his wife Eileen to pancreatic cancer in 2012. The two shared a love for all things Star Wars. He admits that since her death, he's been struggling and his work as an illustrator and photographer has suffered. In an effort to move past his loss and re-spark his creativity, he decided to walk 501 miles dressed as a stormtrooper from the Star Wars Museum in Petaluma, California, to the site of Comic-Con in San Diego. 
He began his trek on June 6th, and he arrived to fanfare Thursday. Along the way, he collected donations to create children's toys, coloring books, and blankets featuring his late wife's artwork. One of Egypt's greatest actors, Omar Sharif, passed away this week at the age of 83. He will be best remembered for outstanding performances in films like Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Funny Girl. His role as Sharif Ali in Lawrence of Arabia earned him two Golden Globe Awards and an Oscar nomination. He also won a Golden Globe for his work in Dr. Zhivago. Earlier this year, Omar Sharif was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. This week, he suffered a fatal heart attack at a hospital in Cairo. I'm Libby Snymer and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It may be the answer for millions of people who suffer from arthritis, and most of the patients who are authorized to use medical marijuana take it for arthritis pain. But there's not enough scientific evidence about how effective it is, what the correct dose should be, and how it should be taken. That's why the Arthritis Society awarded a three-year, $360,000 research grant to Dr. Jason McDougall of Dalhousie University. I discussed the project with him and Joanne Simons, the Arthritis Society's chief mission officer. In a word, it's about pain. There are 4.6 million Canadians uh, living with arthritis, and there are 100 different forms of arthritis, but their chief complaint is pain and their quality of life and being able to manage that on a day-to-day basis. And so the Arthritis Society has taken a leadership position to try and understand the effectiveness and the safety of medical cannabis as a treatment for people living with arthritis pain. I think that right now, mostly what people are offered are painkillers, basically. What are the problems with with the painkillers that are so commonly prescribed for it? Well, uh, just like any drug, there are a number of side effects associated with uh, the analgesics that are used to treat uh, joint pain. So the first-line analgesics that are used by arthritis patients are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or the NSAIDs. So things like uh, over-the-counter drugs like uh, Tylenol. What about ibuprofen? So ibuprofen um, is is something a little different. Uh, ibuprofen is an interesting drug. Uh, it's been used uh, as an over-the-counter analgesic for, for many, many years, but prolonged use of NSAIDs can have uh, detrimental effects like uh, problems with the GI system, uh, kidney uh, failure. Um, the second line of, of... They're hard on your stomach, in other words. They're, that's exactly right. They're, they're hard on, on uh, the, the whole of the gastrointestinal system. Um, and then other uh, courses of treatment include the, the opioids, and the opioids are exceptionally effective at uh, alleviating and controlling and managing uh, joint pain. But the side effects associated with them can be feelings of um, sleepiness, and uh, it can lead to severe constipation and um, changes in cardiovascular function. Chronic use of, of things like ibuprofen can lead to ulceration of, of, the, of, the, of the stomach and, and other parts of the, of the gut. Now, it turns out that most of the people in the country who uh, use medical marijuana 
are actually using it for arthritis. Is that right, Joanne? Yes, that's absolutely right. And so um, there were 40,000 people under the old regulations who had authorization to use uh, medical cannabis, as we use the term, as cannabis. Um, And uh, two-thirds of those are reporting to be using it for severe arthritis. And so there are many more now that we have new regulations that are asking the questions who are interested and talking to their physicians about, is this the right treatment course for them to be able to manage their pain when they're having other issues with the other medications that we've just spoken about. Mm -hmm. And do you have a sense of all those people who were taking it legally uh, for their arthritis on how effective it was? There's certainly anecdotal information that we hear from our constituency that they have been able to reduce medications in other areas and that they are managing their pain better and they're also having less fatigue and able to get to sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jason? I think further research is required to to try and understand the ideal dose, uh, the, the way that we administer the drug, and it may be not appropriate for all patients. So tell me a little bit about how you're designing this study. So this is a, a preclinical study. It's going to be done in the lab, so it's not a clinical study. Um, what we're trying to do is understand how cannabis can repair uh, the nervous system. So it's been found in other diseases like multiple sclerosis and Huntington's disease that patients who take medical cannabis, that it actually repairs uh, the the nervous system. Now, we saw similar sort of nerve damage in the joints of arthritis uh, patients and also in in some models of arthritis. And so the idea is, can we use uh, cannabis-like compounds to help repair Uh, the the nerves on these damaged joints. When you say in the lab, does that mean people are not involved? That's correct. This uh, using animal models and uh, and in vitro situations. So is is any part of this study going to move on to testing on people? Well, uh, hopefully this will be the fundamental research required for future uh, clinical investigations uh, where we can maybe apply some of our findings to uh, the patient population of of the 4.6 million Canadians living with arthritis. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking uh, earlier that you had hoped to find a way uh, to apply the medical cannabis topically. Did I understand correctly? Yes, that's correct. I mean, uh, currently, uh, different forms of of ingesting or taking medical cannabis, uh, including smoking, um, there are tablets, there are uh, sublingual sprays. What we're trying to do is develop, uh, in the future, a topical application whereby we can apply a cream or an oil or a spray locally onto the joint so we can treat the pain directly within the tissues and thereby minimize any uh, centrally mediated side effects like like the highs of of cannabis use. Uh, I'm not sure everyone wants you to eliminate that. Um, Just this week, uh, the government authorized different forms of cannabis so that it doesn't have to just be smoked. How important is that? Well, I think it's extremely important um, because, uh, as I said, smoking any sort of medicine is, is not really an ideal way of administering. And so being able to take it orally, whether that be in an oil or a, or a cookie form or something like that, I think is probably a, a safer and, and more direct approach of, of treating pain and fatigue of, of, of arthritis and chronic pain conditions. How far are we from getting an answer for people? You know, we're looking at a timeline of, of, I say, that five to ten years before we can start start seeing an impact on patients. And this is the first step, and we're thrilled that we were able to uh, fund Dr. McDougall, but certainly there is a lot more that the Arthritis Society wants to do in this area. Okay. Thank you both so much. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
I've been speaking with Dr. Jason McDougall from Dalhousie University and Joanne Simons, Chief Mission Officer of the Arthritis Society. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. With all the weddings that take place in the summer, chances are you know somebody who's celebrating an anniversary. Depending on whether it's their first, 10th, or 25th, there are many different ways these milestones are marked. Coming up, we'll learn the history of anniversaries from etiquette expert Lisa Orr. Next week, my husband and I will celebrate a major milestone, 25 years of marriage, our silver wedding anniversary. Everyone seems to agree that it's a big deal. But exactly what are the traditions and where did they start? I sat down with etiquette and protocol consultant Lisa Orr. Weddings and and celebrations of renewing that commitment to your partner have have always been part of our traditions. And interestingly enough, it actually started in the Middle Ages, which I thought was really neat. I mean, not not so many of our etiquette traditions go back that far. I thought it started in the Roman Empire. So the data on it is a little bit conflicted, but the the best data I can find so far is that it goes back to um, middle-aged Germany and that it was about celebrating when people got married. uh, At their 25th anniversary, they would celebrate them with a, a silver crown, which... It's funny, I thought, well, 25, that seems pretty neat. But I realized that part of the reason why they, I thought, well, they don't live that long in the Middle Ages. How exactly, did they make that happen? So it turns out the average life expectancy was about 48, but they got married when they were 12. <laughs> so that's how they could make the math work. So that's why if you made it to your 50th, they, um, they would celebrate you with a golden crown because that meant you lived past your life expectancy, which was pretty spectacular. So this was something presumably... That was celebrated quite rarely. Yes. When did it become more common? So in the 1900s, that's when it became much more popular to really celebrate anniversaries the way that we think about them today. Before that, there was more of a tradition about these these crowns that would happen when you were at your 25 and your 50. You'd be a crown would be put on your head and you'd be paraded around your village to celebrate <laughs> this fabulousness that you've been married for so long, which is pretty neat. Um, in the Emily Post Blue Book, it talks about in the 1920s, that formal process of what you should give for which event. She became very focused on telling people exactly what they should give and when. And I think that's when people became more aware of what they needed to do. Okay, so we know where the silver came from, sort of. But but I was reading about all kinds of other things. The alternate color is green. The flower is an iris. How did that come about? So, again, part of this commercialization is that people... um, So in 1917, the Queen of England started formally connecting with people and celebrating. And I think that's when the commercialization really began and everyone got in on it. So there were jewelers and florists and they connected with those, um, with that that piece. And so because in etiquette there isn't a governing body, I think that's why there's so much confusion. And, and you'll see when you, when you look at it, there's multiple lists that run depending on if you're in traditional formats or modern. We also see this tradition not so much for the 25th. You have to wait longer where it's going to be recognized I was actually bummed to find out that that we'd have to be married another 35 years before we could get a letter from the Queen. We'd have to be married 50 years before we could even get one from the Governor General. It's it's funny. I think I think those are too long. Myself, I mean, to celebrate 25 years, it seems to me like that's a great place to celebrate. And how much trouble is it for the Governor General to support support a marriage that's been around for 25 years? It's pretty special. But um, interestingly, the Pope actually celebrates it sooner. So there is that option as well. Um, but uh, but <laughs> unfortunately, um, neither of us are Catholic. I am not unfortunately either. But I like that it's a good precedent setting when you're having an anniversary. 
and now that it's been commercialized and there are all these gift things, so who has to get the gifts? Is it both parties have to get a gift for each other? I, I hear a lot of men walking around grousing that, that they have to get gifts for their wives, but they don't necessarily get anything on the other end. My perspective is both both partners should celebrate each other. Marriages aren't one-sided. Therefore, we would hope that the gifts aren't one-sided. They might be different gifts. So, um, for example, my husband often gets me jewelry for an anniversary, but he doesn't wear a lot of jewelry. So I might get him something different, like a, a great bottle of wine or a dinner out, something that, that he'll enjoy. Okay. Now, what happens if one partner forgets? Hmm. This this happens. I, I have been guilty of this myself, I will confess. And it's a terrible position to be in, and most of the time you feel awful. Uh, and I, But I think part of it is your your relationship is built on forgiveness and moving and moving <laughs> forward because in a long marriage, oh my goodness, the number of things that the mistakes you make, the things you forget, it happens. And so I I would say an I'm sorry gift is not a bad idea <laughs> if you did make that mistake. And um, but again, be honest. If you've totally flubbed it and you can't get through it, you know, it's that morning and there's a present and you don't have one because you totally forgot, there's, it's not going to help you to say, oh, I haven't held it to you right back, because there's no way you're going to get a gift in time that's the same. Okay. Any other tips about anniversaries or silver? I think, I think remembering that anniversaries are about celebrating a renewed commitment, and uh, that it's, it's really about the partners, the people who've been married that need to remember it. But if you are one of those people who help them to get married, to acknowledge that day is, is a pretty special thing for a friend to do as well. Okay, Lisa Orr, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was etiquette and protocol consultant Lisa Orr. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. This week, Richard Starkey celebrated his 75th birthday. You probably know him much better by his stage name, Ringo Starr. We'll celebrate with music by the Beatles right after this. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, a new musical tells the story behind Amazing Grace as a former slave ship captain finds inspiration during a journey on the high seas. Amazing Grace is at the Nederlander Theater on West 41st Street. One of the most famous and recognizable of all American paintings is on display this summer at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Whistler's Portrait of His Mother is on loan from the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. To London, England, where Bend It Like Beckham is getting rave reviews. Inspired by the 2002 film, it's the story of a South Asian teenager who breaks with family tradition to play soccer. Bend It Like Beckham is at the Phoenix Theater. And in Berlin, a large-scale exhibition at the Old National Gallery focuses on Impressionism and Expressionism. Some 160 works are shown, including art pieces of Renoir, Dugas, Cezanne, and Monet. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Day. This week, Ringo Starr celebrated his 75th birthday. Ringo was the oldest Beatle, but also the last to join the group. He met them in October 1960 when his band, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, 
performed alongside them in Hamburg. Starr sat in with the Beatles on multiple occasions, but it wasn't until August 1962 that he officially became the drummer of the Fab Four, replacing Pete Best. During his years with the Beatles, one of Ringo's unique talents was coming up with odd quips and phrases, many of which became the inspiration for many of the group's most popular songs. Witticisms like, It was a hard day's night, Tomorrow Never Knows, and Eight Days a Week became hit titles. That was The Beatles with Eight Days a Week. Ringo Starr celebrated his 75th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Please be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Bandrian. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.